I'm Patricia Duff and welcome to The Common Good. Uh, we are so excited about this conversation this evening. But before we get started on tonight's Look Inside Presidential Friendships, I want to acknowledge a few VIPs in our audience today and a couple of honorables. First of all, we're always happy to have our um, honorary advisory board members, Bernard Schwartz, the Honorable Jane Harmon, Stan Schumann. Uh, we've got the Honorable Gillian Sorensen. I see you right there already, Gillian. So great to have you as always. Ellen Chesler from, from the West Coast, Barbara Guggenheim. From press, we've got Nancy Collins and Judy Miller, and uh, really happy to welcome RBG documentary filmmaker Betsy West, among many other people. Um, but if you're new to the um, our Zoom today, at The Common Good, we present conversations that give our members the chance to meet important leaders in government, business, media, academia, and learn more about the political landscape and policy choices that are shaping our nation. We've created a platform that's dedicated to helping make change happen, finding common ground and sharing ideas one conversation at a time. We'll do our part to defeat disinformation and division by presenting high quality discussions and briefings and by fostering a community that values thoughtful and reasoned debate. If you support these ideas too and haven't done so already, please consider joining the common good. We'd be thrilled to have you. So today we're very excited to have one of the most highly regarded advisors and strategists in the country, Gary Ginsburg, who has been at the forefront of public and private sectors for over 25 years. He's helped to lead global corporations, including Time Warner, News Corp, and SoftBank, spent time in the Clinton White House, and in his spare time, he's been known to lend his expertise to top presidential candidates. When I click his new book, First Friends offers a fresh perspective on, on the White House, looking at the fascinating personal friendships which have shaped American presidents throughout history. He just told me he's been through three printings. It's sold out. So if you haven't ordered your book yet, it'd be better today because you're going to be waiting for a few weeks to get it. Um, it's really amazing. It was on the New York Times bestseller list. Gary, you've just done an amazing job with that book. But I was, I was telling you, uh, recently I was speaking with the great presidential biographer, Bob Caro, and he told me that your take, Gary, had not yet been done before, and it really is a, a different and fresh take on presidential action. So, Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, and th thanks for having me uh, to, to join you for this, uh, this talk. And I, I see so many familiar faces in the audience, and I'm really thrilled that you're joining this tonight. Well, they're joining for you, and they're also joining for our great friend um, who's going to grill you tonight, the indomitable venture capitalist and close friend of the common good, Alan Patrickoff. He's the co-founder and chairman of Graycroft, and his innovations in venture capital have helped grow a huge number of now global corporations, including Office Depot, Audible, one of my favorite things, Axios, and Apple. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. I'm passing the conversation over to you. Well, thank you, Patricia, and thank you, Gary, for coming tonight. Uh, I actually look forward to this one-on-one -on -one conversation because your book is such an easy read. I mean, you know, this is one of these books you 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 really can't put down because it's just fun. Uh, and I wonder when you set out to do this, I mean, it was a very creative idea. Uh, how many presidents' lives did you actually explore to get down to nine? And of course, the next question that goes with it, which I know everybody has asked you, is why do you 
why did you pick these particular nine? Yeah, well, I knew um, starting out, and I came up with this idea in April of 2018. And I think in part, it's because I grew up watching the friendship between Bibi Rebozo and Nixon. I was 10 years old in 1972, kind of at the apex of, um, of that friendship. And I was just, you know, transfixed by this guy who was always by the president's side, you know, with his pocket handkerchiefs, dapper, suave. And I was just, I guess I took really special note of this man next to the president. And then I was able to, you know, live the French friendship between Vernon Jordan and Bill Clinton. And so when I, when I decided to write this book, those were two chapters that I knew I wanted to do. I, you know, I also knew I wanted to do Kennedy only because he had the same great capacity for friendship that Clinton did. And I'd grown up reading all kinds of biographies of Kennedy and I knew so many of his good friends. And I was fortunate to find a friend who is probably among the least known of his closest friends who's never really gotten the kind of treatment that I gave him in my book, but I think was in fact his closest friend, but also probably the friend that had the greatest influence on his presidency. And that's really what I was looking for is somebody who provided for the most part, both that important respite role that a first friend provides, but also the, the role of being able to speak the blunt truth of being able to tell the friend things that they may not want to hear, but need to hear. And I think we all have friends in our lives who provide one or the other, or in the ideal situation, both of those functions. So I probably looked, just to answer your specific question, I probably looked at about 20 friendships. Um, and I chose the nine that I did in part because I wanted to span the, the totality of, of our country's history. So I wanted to find a friendship from our founding fathers. I wanted to find a friendship from the Civil War era, from the First World War, from the Second World War, from the Cold War, and then a president from the 21st century. And you know, I, I was able to, to get, get that president within 20 days by, by choosing Bill Clinton. Well, you know, Gary, you, know, you and I, just in full disclosure, had about a five-minute conversation the other day because I asked you what things you might want to bring up. And I, and I, I said to you, of all the ones I had read, and I have read the book clearly, uh, it seems to me that the friendship between Vernon and Bill Clinton was really friendship, much yeah. stronger than I sensed in any of the others. I didn't sense there was that close buddy, buddy friendship. They were friends. There's no question about it. And you obviously, you knew Clinton and you knew Vernon. Uh, I don't know how many of the others you actually knew. Uh, probably none. No, uh, none. I couldn't. So you obviously were at a disadvantage. So you you knew that friendship, and I knew that that friendship. That was real friendship. I, I actually would have thought you might have had Terry McAuliffe instead of Vernon, but uh, Vernon was a good choice. Just in the full, in full disclosure, and I mentioned this in in my preface, is I actually asked Bill Clinton, "Who's your first friend? Who do you want me to?" He I called him about the book. He loved the idea of the book. I said, "Would you participate?" He said, "Of course, love to." So then I said, would you choose your first friend? It's silly for me to, you know, to assert who it is, you know, it's his life. And he said, you know, it's going to take me some time because the man had a lot of good friends. And I think, I think he was choosing, frankly, between Terry, Bruce, Lindsay, and Vernon. And then he came back about three weeks later and said, I, I want to talk about Vernon. And I was grateful because right after I decided to write the book, the first phone call I made was to Vernon. 
at Lazard and I said, I'm going to write this book. I want to write a chapter about you and Bill Clinton. Can I talk to you? And he said, come on over. And then when I showed up, he's, he had his book, Vernon Can Read. And he said, Gary, you know, there's a reason why I ended the book in 1992. And that's because I want to tell the story. I don't want anybody else to tell it. And I think he had an intention to write a sequel to Vernon Can Read that would cover the eight years of Clinton's presidency. And then the final, you know, he didn't know he was going to die, unfortunately, in 2021. But I think he wanted to take it up to the current day and really describe that friendship because it was so rich and involved so many consequential moments. But, um, but unfortunately, you know, he had the stroke in 2019 and was really, frankly, incapacitated to write it. So hopefully I did it justice. Uh, in many respects, Gary, you know, you were, you probably wouldn't describe yourself as first friend, but your role with Rupert and your role at Time Warner was, you know, very similar to a lot of the roles you're describing here. Uh, would you consider yourself in the role you played? Because that, I mean, there's a lot of parallels there. Uh, would well, you I say we're first friend? Or... Well, I would, you know, listen, I, I would never assert that I was first friend to Rupert Murdoch. You know, Rupert Murdoch was a generation older than me. He had a lot of old friends. I, I mean, I was very, very close to him. I, you know, I decided not to include staff or family in my definition of a first friend, because I think there's a qualitative difference in the way you relate to somebody if you work for them. No matter how close you get, you're ultimately serving at the pleasure of either the president or a CEO. Now, I was able with Rupert to, to pretty much say whatever I wanted to him. It was kind of the nature of our friendship. I think he hired me in part because he wanted somebody very different from other people who were in his inner circle in New York. You know, I was probably 10, 15 years younger than anybody else in his C-suite. I was the only Democrat, only one who had worked for a Democratic administration. He called me his resident Trotskyite, I think with some affection. And, you know, I think he kind of valued the fact that I was, I came from a different mindset and I, and I, he encouraged me to be very blunt with him. And I think it helped to avoid groupthink, which I think is one of the great detriments. Hey, that's, friend. that's first friend. That's yeah, first friend. Yeah. How about with Jeff, Jeff or with uh, Dick? Uh, yeah, no, I, think, I think with Jeff, I formed the same kind of relationship and Jeff, you know, was so inviting of both, he liked to be friends with the people he worked closest with. And we had a very good, you know, personal relationship as well as a very strong professional relationship. I think, you know, when I, I, I worked um, at George Magazine with John Kennedy Jr. And I think um, that was another example where a CEO, albeit a publisher slash editor, who was starting a new business under the glare of a national spotlight, really wanted somebody around him whom he trusted. Now, John had a lot of great friends. I'm not going to say I was his first friend by any means, but I was a close friend. And I think the role he, without knowing it consciously or not, he wanted somebody around him when he started that magazine who could speak the blunt truth to him, tell him what was up, what was down, interpret what other people, you know, people were very cowed by him and very much, they couldn't really be themselves around him. And I think he just wanted somebody that he could feel totally natural with who could provide respite. We used to go out and play Frisbee in the park in the middle of the day just to, just to let off steam because the intensity of starting a magazine was so great. So I think that in part, I played a little bit of that role for a couple of years in the mid-90s. And perhaps that was um, 
what inspired me to write this book, even though I don't mention it at any point in my book, but I saw the role of a first friend, you know, in those contexts to your, to your point. And I think I, I could appreciate it when I then applied it to the president. Uh, House was, and in my opinion, after reading this was a hired hand. I mean, he was there for his personal objectives and I, I don't know, I, I don't know how you defined him as a first friend, uh, he was a counselor, he, uh, but he had his own reasons for being there. I don't think that was the same, perhaps, with Vernon or. Yeah, you, you mentioned that yesterday, and, and you know, Alan and I have been on boards to, on, on the Audible board together. So I've never been been shy about arguing with Alan. I would argue that he was, in fact, uh, Woodrow Wilson's first friend. Woodrow Wilson had one great friend in his life. He was a member of the Princeton faculty, and I write about him. I spend a good two pages on the breakup of that friendship in 1906-1907. And the reason why I included that was because I was convinced that in 1911, when Woodrow Wilson is governor of New Jersey and thinking about running for president, pretty much resolved to run for president a year later, that he knew he was missing something in his life. His daughter, I found a quote, his daughter said the two great tragedies in my father's life were the failure to pass the League of Nations Treaty and the loss of his best friend, Jack Hibben. And so I think Woodrow Wilson felt an emptiness in his life and needed a friend. And you're absolutely right. Colonel House was looking for the quote, and I say that in the book, the man and the opportunity. He was an ambitious, very successful Texas businessman and fixer who had mastered the art of Texas politics, had elected four consecutive Democratic governors, and now wanted a bigger stage. And he had spent 11 years looking for that man and the opportunity. I'd say that about Steve Bannon. <laughs> sure, yeah. But I think it's different here because if you read my chapter carefully, you will see how much personal time they spent. Remember when Woodrow Wilson is walks around New York City late at night in 1914, and he, suic he talks about wanting to kill himself. They take drives into Rock Creek Park where they talk about their biggest fears and their greatest aspirations. He slept in the White House night after night. When his wife, Ellen, dies, there's only one man there to console him, and that is Colonel House. Did he take advantage of it for his own self-aggrandizement? Absolutely. But I think it was done with the full affection and support of his best friend, the president. Well, it's interesting. I, I, you know, every, I, I, can, I interpreted your writing differently, and I thought he was a very... Uh, devious, not devious, maybe too strong, but he had his objective and he took advantage of a lonely man who, who needed a friend. Yeah, yeah, but I, look, at, I think Colonel House needed a friend too. I think they both fed up well, with each other. Let, let's talk about the most unattractive president that you talk about, although we, we may not agree on that one, uh, but I think we would, uh, uh, Franklin Pierce who uh, is certainly not, I guess you said he's the second least popular or the second most unpopular president that- Third most. Had. Third. Yes. He's considered the third, the third most unsuccessful president in history. And only 7% of Americans can identify him as a US president. And he's the only, and the only president who didn't get, as I recall, renominated- Correct. To run First, for president a second time. Correct. He, he was an abject failure. And he's the only pairing where the friend is better known today than the president, which, which was part of why I found the chapter to be 
interesting, at least to me. And I think, you know, it's gotten a pretty good reaction. It's probably the chapter that most people will skip if they choose to skip around because nobody knows Franklin Pierce. But I just thought it was a really interesting example of a friendship that starts in college that lasts right until Hawthorne dies. And it's two men really against the world who maintain their friendship despite the cost that it, you know, it yielded for both men. And I don't pretend that it's a happy chapter, doesn't have a happy ending, but I thought it showed the durability of a friendship against tremendous pressures. Well, as you said, Hawthorne is probably a lot more famous now as an author than Pierce was as a president. And mm -hmm. they, uh, which kind of slides into the subject of slavery. I mean, slavery comes into a couple of your chapters, uh, right? Kidding. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting how slavery uh, has been an issue from day one in this country. And Absolutely. It's not yeah. quite, the word slavery is not there today, but it's certainly uh, all the, the offshoots of, of yes. that terrible history. Uh, yeah. what, what's your, you know, how do you feel about, you know, that aspect of all the, of all the things that were, you know, affected these relationships very strongly, particularly yeah. in the I think where it really plays out most um, prominently in terms of testing a friendship was, was with Joshua Speed and Abraham Lincoln. Joshua Speed, for those who haven't read the book, um, was a slave owner. He had about 20 slaves that fueled his business in Kentucky. Joshua Speed and Abraham Lincoln spent four years sharing a bed in Springfield, Illinois between 1837 and 1841. And I hope, Alan, that you agree that that was a genuine friendship. Absolutely, 100%. That, yeah. Hey, all the, for all those who will read this book, if you haven't, uh, I think Gary gives a very convincing uh, position that there was no homosexuality between these two men. It was the way, I mean, I, we don't have other stories about people who lived, who slept in the same bed, but for expediency, for, for uh, financial ability, for convenience, these two guys shared a bed, but uh, yeah. I don't think it went any further. Right, but I, but I think they, sh I think it was an example of a perfect friendship, in that they shared their same values, they shared interests, they reveled in each other's successes, they shared each other's failures, and 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 were empathetic toward each other, and it really they forged an incredibly close bond. But to your question on slavery. They really separate out in the 1850s. They're both kind of um, getting much more uh, successful in their respective fields. You know, Lincoln is becoming uh, a leader. He, he's left the Whig Party. He's forming the Republican Party, and he's kind of working through his views on slavery. And he starts this this correspondence with Speed, where they really debate out, you know, the institution of slavery in the mid 1850s. And that's right in the middle of Franklin Pierce's presidency, where Franklin Pierce um, signs the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which basically abrogates the compromises of 1820 and 1850, which kept this very fragile union together. There were very specific boundaries as to where slavery could expand. And by passing this act in 1854, he allowed slavery now to go into areas where heretofore it was prohibited. And so now the country is, is beginning its descent into civil war. And so the friendship is really tested through these competing notions of slavery where 
Lincoln is becoming, if not an abolitionist, a really big believer that slavery ultimately has to be abolished. And Speed holds to, hey, it's a constitutional right, and we have to allow it to preserve the union. And yet their friendship survives this great debate that goes on for about two years through these course, through these letters. And then in 1861, he wants Speed to join his administration. He, 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 he really does buy into this team of rivals. Dor Doris Kearns Goodwin doesn't write about Speed, but he was another example of a Southern slave owner that Lincoln wanted in his cabinet. He says, Abe, I, I don't want to be in your government. I'm too rich to take a job in government, but I'll do you one better. I will do everything I can to keep Kentucky in the Union. Kentucky was a border state, one of the four border states. And he says, I'll do everything I can to make sure they don't secede. And he goes back to Kentucky. They meet in Chicago for when Lincoln offers him this job, he goes back to Kentucky and he makes sure that all the arms that are shipped down to Kentucky end up in the, in the hands of Union militiamen, which was really important. And he helps Lincoln message the war to Kentuckians who didn't want to think that the war was about slavery. And he was very, very in Lincoln's face to make sure that the messaging was right. And Lincoln really credited Speed with keeping Kentucky in the Union, which was key to him winning the war and, and keeping the Union preserved. But, but, but I, I, this is a direct quote I wrote down. Uh, Speed said, I would rather see the Union dissolved rather than give up the right in the Constitution. Right. You, that, Just that like, the yeah, you know, he said he, was, he believed it was, a, it was a firm constitutional right. And he said, we have to maintain this institution or else we're going to lose, we'll lose the Union. And you're right. He, he was willing to give it up you know, willing to give up the, the union instead of giving up this right. And so they really, there was a, a, a kind of a bifurcation there at that point. I mean. Oh yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not papering it over. They were completely on opposite sides of this debate over slavery. And yet he goes back to Kentucky and fights for the union. But that's friendship. That's friendship. That was my point. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, now we, let, let's shift. I mean, there as you all know, if you don't, there are nine presidents uh, and friendships there. So each one has its own flavor. I think the one that other than Vernon and Clinton that we're probably all most familiar with is the Harry Jacobs. Is it Harry Jacobs? No, Eddie. Eddie, Eddie, Jacobs. Eddie Jacobson's friendship with Harry Truman. Uh, that's because there are so many Jews in New York who uh, are all uh, are addicted to, not addicted, who are supporters of uh, the state of Israel and uh, uh, how important Eddie Jacobson played in that particular, which was a very, very hotly contested issue. You want to talk about that a little bit? And, sure. That's, sure. That's, and that was that was an interesting friendship because they were partners in business. They came from the same town. I mean, that's friendship. I mean, they, uh, although there was a big gap, as you know. Yes, there was, right. So go ahead, why don't you yeah. talk about well, They it. met in 1903 when Eddie was a 16-year-old who had dropped out of high school to sell men's shirts because he said, education can't buy bread. He was the son of Lithuanian uh, immigrants. His father was a shoemaker. Uh, he was depositing the day's receipts from uh, the men's store that he was working at and the teller was Harry Truman. And they became fast friends. Truman was seven years older than Eddie. They end up serving in the war together, it's First World War. And Truman recognizes as the head of this artillery unit that Eddie has a knack for making money. And so when the war ends, as uh, 
as Alan says, they go into business together and they form a men's haberdashery in Kansas City. And for the first year it thrives and then commodity prices fall in 1921 and the, and the store goes bankrupt. But they maintain this great friendship for the next, really th throughout until Eddie dies in 1956. But the really climactic moment of this friendship and it, as Alan alludes to is in 1948. Now Eddie's never asked Truman for anything, but Eddie is a Zionist and he is really intent on seeing a Jewish state carved out of the land of Palestine. Truman has a really difficult decision to make. What do you do with that land? Do you go with, the UN had proposed a partition plan, many of you will remember in 1947, creating an Arab state and a Jewish state. The Arabs rejected the partition plan. Now the British have a mandate that's gonna expire in May of 1948. And Truman has to figure out do you let the UN just decide it, in which case nothing will happen to the land and there will be no Jewish state? Or do you recognize a Jewish state when somebody you know, in Israel ends up saying, okay, well, we're not gonna wait for the UN, we're just gonna declare a state. The reason why it was such a confounding problem for Truman was because his secretary of state, George Marshall, was dead set against creating a Jewish state because he thought that it would invite a war with, this, with the Soviet Union, would, require, would end up requiring American boys to go back into war uh, to defend this nascent Jewish state. And he thought it would end up with an oil boycott that would ruin the US economy. So he was dead set against it. And he was the most revered man in America as a result of his status as a general in the second world war. In addition, the defense department was dead set against the Jewish state. Truman was actually a devout Baptist who understood the Jewish connection to the land that it went back to, you know, went back 2000 years. He had supported the resettlement of Jewish refugees, but he didn't want to go against George Marshall. And in addition, he was so tired of the lobbying of Jewish Zionist activists. And he complained you, one day. You can, imagine, yeah, you can imagine the, the line outside his door. Yeah, it, they were. One guy opened up an umbrella and, you know, thousands of dollars in uh, bills fell, fell out on the Truman's desk. And he said, if you do it, I'll make sure that more of this money comes your way. And they were hectoring him. And at one point in the cabinet meeting, he said, you know, Jesus Christ couldn't keep you Jews happy in his lifetime. How am I supposed to do it? So by the time Eddie Jacobson gets involved, he's just sick of the issue. And he is resolved. He's not going to make a decision. He's going to let the UN decide it. And that means there'll probably be no recognition of a state by the United States government. Chaim Weitzman is sitting in New York. Chaim Weitzman was the most powerful Zionist voice at the time. And he had, he had discovered in 1917 a way to mass produce acetone. Acetone is a key ingredient in gunpowder. And because of his discovery, the British were able to accelerate their victory in the First World War. And the British government was so grateful that they said, what can we give you as a reward for your discovery. And he said, I want a Jewish state. So that's where the Belfort Declaration came from. So now he's sitting in New York City. It's March of 1948 and Truman will not see him because he's so fed up with the issue. So Eddie flies halfway across the country, walks up the North driveway, walks into the appointment secretary office unannounced and uninvited and says, I wanna see Harry. And the appointment secretary knows of his first friendship with the president and says, okay, fine, you can go in and see Harry, but do not bring up Palestine. He does not want to talk about it. So Eddie says, I promise I won't. 
He walks into the office, they, they make chit chat. And at one point Truman says, well, what the hell are you doing here, Eddie? You've never come asking for anything. Why'd you fly halfway across the country? And he says, you have to see Chaim Weitzman. And immediately Truman bangs his hand on the desk. God damn it. I'm sick of you Jews. I'm not going to see him. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I can't believe he flew halfway across the country for this. Um, I'm not going to do it. And now Eddie's just standing there. And he says at that moment, it was the first time in 43 years, 45 years, that he thought his best friend, Harry Truman, was an anti-Semite. But he was resolved he wasn't going to leave that office without winning this, this fight. So he looks around the office and he sees a bust of Andrew Jackson. And he knows that Andrew Jackson is Harry Truman's best friend. And only a best friend would have been able to do this. A, a to know that his best friend, was, his hero, was Andrew Jackson. And then to be able to say what he then said. He said, I'm looking at this bust of Andrew Jackson, Harry. And I know that Andrew Jackson's your best friend. And you're your hero. I'm sorry, your hero. My I hero. I was away 100 years later. It's hard to be his best friend. No, his hero. Exactly. He's your hero. Because my hero is Chaim Weitzman. And you won't see him because you are frazzled by these pushy Jews, would Andrew Jackson be cowed? Would he, would he give in to, to a bunch of pesky people as opposed to doing what he knows is right, which would be to see this man? You know you need to see him. You know you need to recognize the Jewish state. Do what's right, Harry. Harry is just furious. He turns his back to him. He starts drumming his fingers on the credenza, looking out into the Rose Garden. About a minute and a half goes by. He finally swivels his chair back, bangs his hand on the desk, and he says, God damn it, you bald-headed son of a bitch. I'll see him. A few days later, Chaim Weitzman came down from New York. They had a great meeting. He persuaded Truman that he should recognize the Jewish state. And then the 11 minutes after the state of Israel was declared in Tel Aviv in May of 1948, Harry Truman was the first foreign leader to recognize the state of Israel. And it had huge implications for the relationship that the two countries have now enjoyed you know, since that time. That was a great exposition. Uh, and it gives you a sense of why the book is so exciting. Bob Wyman asks uh, an interesting question. Is what's, what is the one key or most important lesson that you took away from you know, studying all these friend, these relationships between, uh, well, it's only one woman, most of it's the only one uh, woman. The rest are men. Yeah, that's unfortunately just you know because. And I'm not sure I buy that. I'm not sure I buy your thesis, but I wasn't there of Roosevelt and uh, his best friend. I think you just wanted to have a woman in there someplace. Yeah, I, well, I, I'd be curious if anybody else on this call read the chapter and uh, disagrees, because you know I disagree. I think it was a, a really important example of uh, somebody in his life who provided that emotional respite that was so important to presidents. When I asked Hillary Clinton, what's the most important role of a first friend, certainly to your husband and in your study of presidents? And she said, it's respite. It's, it's providing that antidote to loneliness and giving a president a break from the awesome responsibilities and pressures of the office. And I think Daisy did that. Um, and we can argue that offline, but I, I, I hopefully I proved that. Um, I, to, to answer the question, um, what I concluded after three years of studying this is that the presidents who did have a first friend were almost always the better for it, and so was our country. 
What I can't conclude from my study is that presidents who don't have a first friend are necessarily going to fail, or that those presidents who did have a first friend or first friends would succeed. But I, I think I show in my book that the, that the vast majority of those who I wrote about were really better men for it. And I think the country was better served as a result of it. Uh, we have a question popping up, which I, I, you know, maybe, uh, it, what, wasn't Bernard Baruch uh, a close friend of Wilson and, and FDR? I, I, I'm, I don't know how oh. close they were. Yes, sure, so was, so was Morgenthau, so was Harry Hopkins, so was, you know, there were- Who lived, who lived in the White House with-, with Harry Hopkins. Hopkins. Yeah, I mean, wasn't, that's who I would have thought would have been. Yeah, but Harry, everybody's written about Harry Hopkins. I kind of wanted to do somebody that very few people knew. And I also, as I said, I wanted to show that other side of friendship. Um, because I, you know, most people don't realize how lonely FDR was in the White House. You know, he's fighting a world war, he's fighting a depression, he's a gregarious man. But, you know, when the cameras turned off, when the applause died, he would go back into that second floor and there was no one around. And that's why Daisy Sookley, his seventh cousin, played such an important role because she was the antidote to that loneliness. And I write about one day in 1944, he had 22 separate meetings. I would have wanted to go to bed after 22 separate meetings. He wanted to have dinner alone with Daisy because he just could relax. He could laugh. What about Missy Han? Uh, Missy Lehan was very sick. You know, she was very close to him. She was, you know, probably the most powerful woman to, you know, first woman to serve in a really senior role in administration. They were probably lovers in the 1920s. Um, but she got very sick in 1941, had a stroke, um, and then died in 1944. So I didn't want to do, do her because um, she really didn't play that big a role in the last, uh, the last two terms. Well, she was a close enough friend to theoretically be have become his lover. So that's yeah, no, no, no. And, and listen, Daisy, I think, had a sexual interlude with him. Uh it probably involved a lot of kissing one day, but um, but Missy Lehand also worked for him in the White House. And I just didn't I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that dynamic. Uh you brought up in your the Kennedy relationship with uh, a foreign uh, an Englishman. Uh, and, you know, we all have read a lot about Kennedy and he seemed to have so many friends in, uh, including Gillian's wife, excuse me, Gillian's, Gillian's husband, uh, uh, that were very close to him at all the time, at all times. Uh, yeah, he did. Yeah. I, I mean, I just wondered how you, you just wanted to pick him because no one really, it wasn't an obvious. I picked him, I picked him because, because because Caroline Kennedy, I went to her and I said, who is your father's oh. friend? Oh, I said, I said yeah, so I, I went to her and I said, listen, I'm because I went to law school with her. I knew her very, very well. Um, and she liked the idea of the book. And I said, you know, I'm tempted to do Lem Billings because he did 14 hours of oral history at the library. And there's just rich detail. Um, and I was also thinking about doing Dave Powers, but Dave Powers worked for him, although, you know, they, they were really good friends and I didn't really want to break my rule. So I thought about Lem Billings and she said, no, don't do Lem Billings. I have somebody who is far more interesting, who was far closer to my father and my mother during the White House. And he's a, somebody I knew 
because he lived till 1985 and lived in London and Caroline used to go over to London a fair amount and stay with him. So she gave me this name. She said, you're not going to readily get it. It's going to take you about 48 hours, but come back to me and tell me if I, if it's not the best choice. It took me about 48 hours to figure out the contours of her, of it. But I was convinced within a couple of days that he was in fact the closest person to Kennedy, both um, intellectually as well as personally in the last three years of his life. There's no question that, that Ormsby Gore and his wife, Sissy, spent more time with Jack and Jackie than any other couple. That Kennedy loved Ormsby Gore's mind more than anybody else's besides perhaps his brothers. And just to give you a small measure of how close they were that when Patrick Kennedy, the third child of Jack and Jackie was born in August, they had chosen Sissy Gore to be his godmother. They didn't learn of that until the day after Kennedy was assassinated when Jackie, in a whisper at the first kind of mass for the slain president goes up to them after the service and in a whisper into Sissy's ear says, you would have been Patrick's godmother had he lived. Um, but it just, it's just a measure of how close they were. And, and I, as hopefully as I show in my chapter, there was nobody who was more important to Jack Kennedy in thinking through important foreign policy issues than this British ambassador to the United States. It's kind of ironic, but he helped him through the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was a key advisor during those key days of days five, six, seven, eight, of helping him decide on a, on a blockade rather than bombing helped him set the perimeter of the blockade itself, helped him message uh, how he was gonna talk about the blockade to the world. Um, and then was really the intellectual soulmate behind Kennedy deciding to pursue a limited nuclear test ban treaty in 1963. Without David Ormsby Gore at his side, he never would have passed that, that, um, that act and, or that treaty. And I don't think we would have seen the acceleration toward the end of the Cold War uh, as fast as we did without it. Now, if you were going to include one more president, who would you who would you include? Because you said you looked at twenty. Yeah, I, who, I, who just missed being number ten? I probably would have done well. Listen, I I wanted to do George Bush, um, and he had, he agreed to do it. He told me he wanted me to write about his friend Don Evans, but he also wanted me to cover his friendship with his brother, even though it went against my rules. And he wanted to talk about Jim Baker's friendship with his dad. And um, so I was going to do that. We just unfortunately uh, couldn't organize the interview before my deadline. I probably would have done John Rollins and Ulysses S. Grant. Um, I was just fascinated by that. Problem was I had just done Lincoln and I would have had three presidents within 15 years and I didn't want to have such a concentration. But John Rollins, kept Ulysses S. Grant off the bottle beginning in 1859. He's the man who really kind of recognized his genius as a former military general in the Mexican-American War, got him promoted, got him back into the game, got him, you know, so that he became the foremost general in the Union Army, and then was by his side right up through into, the, into his first term as president. And I just thought that without John Rollins, we would not have had uh, Grant as you know a war general, a war hero, and then a president. Gary, Gary we have a great question from I mean a question from Jillian, who uh, is the perfect person to ask a question because she was certainly close enough 
to know, have some insights into certainly the Kennedy era. Jillian, can you uh, ask your question? Uh, thank you, Alan. And congratulations on such an interesting book, Gary. I, I read it with fascination from beginning to end. Thank you. Thank you. And understandably, I was quite taken with the chapter on JFK. Um, I think your choice of David Ormsby Gore was right on the mark. And oh, I thank you. That and means a lot. That means a lot coming from you. Thank you. And I thank you for your reference to um, to Ted, my late husband, who thank was you. close, but for different reasons uh, over, yes. over 11 years. Um, but my question actually relates to our former president, Donald Trump. Um, I have heard multiple times that essentially he had no friends or only friends that were useful, that were of utility to him. And yes. they could be dismissed with the, with the slap of a hand. Um, would you reflect a little on what's lost when a leader at, at that, of that stature actually has no people around him who can tell the truth or give him yes. respite as you described? Right, and um, I, I wanted to do a chapter on Donald Trump. You know, I wrote it during Trump's presidency. In part, um, I think I, I saw the urgency of this book because I was witnessing exactly what you just said, Gillian, that he had no friends. And I was thinking even in 2018, how destructive or detrimental that was to his presidency. But I think we saw it most um, pronounced in those final two months of his presidency when nobody could walk into that Oval Office and say to him, Donald or Mr. President, get off this big lie. Leave this office with dignity. You don't need to do this. There was nobody around him. And I, I spent a fair amount of time talking to somebody very senior in the Trump orbit who was in a position to know. And this person kind of dangled a couple of ideas in front of me. My publisher said, Gary, I do not want you doing a chapter on Trump. It will be anathema to selling this book. Um, so I never really seriously thought about doing a chapter, but this person basically filibustered me on a name, never came back to me with a name. After I finished the book, I had a long talk with this person. It was in March of this year. And he finally said to me, look, the reality is Trump doesn't have a first friend. And I agree with you that it really, you know, if Rudy Giuliani was his best friend, God forbid, we would have a friend like that. And this person was around the Oval Office all the time. So he confirmed my, my suspicion that presidents who don't have that first friend, who don't have somebody who can tell them the hard truth, they're always disturbed by it. I mean, when Kennedy, um, after the Bay of Pigs, was really distraught because he had approved a plan that I think in his heart he knew was flawed, he asked um, Eisenhower to go to Camp David. And Eisenhower took a long walk with him. And at one point he said, he said, Jack, was there anybody in your inner council who could speak the truth to you? And who spoke up and said, hey, Mr. President, this plan stinks, don't do it. He said, no, nobody did. Nobody questioned it in that kind of critical way. And Eisenhower said, you have to make sure that the next crisis you face, you have somebody you really trust. And I think you know, that was kind of the, the origins of this notion of groupthink, where Kennedy resolved um, not to do that again. And that's where the XCOM came from. But I think that's why on day five, 
he says, you know, he's, he realizes now that the decision is going to be a blockade or bombing. And he issues four orders as he's returning from Chicago because he knows he has to get back to the White House now to deliberate this really existential question. He says, I got to see David Ormsby Gore tomorrow morning, make sure he gets to the White House unseen because he knows that David Ormsby Gore is going to be able to hash this thing out in terms that no other staffer around, you know, that, that, that McNamara couldn't, that McGeorge Bundy couldn't, that nobody, he just, he just needed this guy that he'd been debating foreign policy with since 1938, that he felt totally at ease with and knew he would speak the truth to him. And that was the person that he met with that Sunday morning to spend an hour and a half in the morning and then back at night for dinner, really debating the merits of those two options. And so um, with Trump, you know, I think we, you know, the reality is this, I, let me just go back to the end of what this person told me. He said, what the president really needed most of all was affirmation from the masses. That was his first friend. And just to illustrate that point, he said that we would go to Camp David for weekends and the president would bring family and friends. And what he would do the entirety of the weekends was he would sit in the cabin and he would sit on the phone and call around his supporters around the country and ask, how am I doing? And to hear that, you know, you're doing great was his sense of respite, was his sense of, you know, connection, of affirmation. He didn't need that human interaction. He didn't need the things that most of us need in our daily lives. So the way I described Trump's first round was really his Twitter feed. And, um, and I think there's some merit to that. Uh, Gary, uh, Patricia DeBoss wants to ask a question. Sure. Well, I just asked, there are a few people we need to get to, like Jim Zyron. I'm hoping maybe Jane Harmon will uh, say hello and ask a question. I also have a question from Chris Christopher Lowe. But I'm, I'm curious about your process. This is a heck of a lot of history that you've covered here. Um, clearly, you did some interviews speaking to um, Hillary Clinton and a, a few other people. How did you go about this and feel so confident in the in the historical accuracy of what you were doing? Um, I, I read everything. I mean, I'm a quick reader. I, I, I've read a lot of biographies of presidents. I've read a lot of biographies of the presidents that I had covered. Um, the, the really the fun thing for me was just finding the intersections between the friend and the president. So I didn't have to read everything, but I, I, I really wanted to, you know, I had to come up with a kind of a, a formula how I was going to tell these stories. So it was a lot of playing around with, you know, different formulations of storytelling to find the ways to bring them together. And that took a lot of kind of trial and error. But I just, I, I was able to call around for the last three chapters um, because there were, a f I wish I, Gillian, I wish I could have called you. Um, I would have called you in a heartbeat. Um, but I spoke to a few people who are still around from the Kennedy era. I spoke to a number of people um, in the Nixon era. I, was, I spoke to somebody very, very close to Nixon, who's still alive, a family member who did not let me use his or her name. But I got a great sense of their friendship from this person. I talked to John Dean for a long time. John Dean had a great story that I include in the book and really helped me understand the nature of their friendship, that they could sit in silence for hours. And yet, and yet I think that anecdote of spending hours in silence and then 
the BB's ability to break it, to bring Nixon back into the world, gave me great insight into why Nixon felt like he needed a friend. Because I think Nixon, you know, could have been friendless. That was kind of his nature. Um, he was a lonely kid, lost two sons, but I think he had the emotional awareness to know he needed a friend. So he picked a friend who could sit with him for hours in silence, but then pull him out at that key moment so that he didn't sink deeper and deeper into his own neuroses and paranoia and suspicions. And, um, and so I think that was the genius of Bibi Rebozo was to read his mood so well and to keep him engaged in the world. Um, in terms, of, in terms of the research, it was, as I said, really um, for the majority of the presidents was just reading everything I could. Libraries for a big part of this were closed, so I couldn't delve into some of the material I needed. I was able to find diaries by reaching out to people. Like Colonel House's diary is at Yale. Um, I had a friend who actually, a friend I met during this process who had all the, all the diaries because he had thought about writing a book about Colonel House and he sent them to me, which was a great resource. Um, but it was really, it was a lot of secondary source material and then finding some primary source material that otherwise I couldn't have found in libraries from other people and then putting it all together. I, I, I would throw in here, Gary, I, I, not only did I enjoy it, but it's a history lesson. You have, it's not just learning about the first friends, you learn a lot about the presidents themselves. Yeah, I wanted that because I, I thought to understand the friendship, you got to understand the men, right? You can't just start, you can't start in the White House. You really got to kind of trace their lives, show how, you know, why do they intersect? What did they each see in each other? Was it a relationship of, if it was a transactional relationship, I, for the most part, didn't want to do it. I really was looking for that Aristotelian um, relationship where it's perfect. You know, that's his fullest form of friendship where you share values and interests. And I hope, and I know you disagree on a couple of them, Alan, but I, I think for the most part, there were, they were pretty close to perfect friendships. Yeah, but, but Jim Jiren asked you a question. I know Patricia wanted to make sure that Jim's question gets heard is he's saying how many of them were re emotional friendships and how many of them were, you know, not just a, don't say business relationship, but they had, they weren't that emotional tie. That's why I brought up Vernon and bill earlier that they right. really had an emotional time sure did i don't know which which, which one would you say i don't think you say all of these were emotional ties which ones would you say were just, yeah that's a great question i I've never no one's ever asked me that specific question i, I mean I, I think certainly the first three all were emotional i mean you see joshua speed keeping lincoln from killing himself you see Hawthorne, when Hawthorne's daughter is near death and Pierce goes to Rome and walks the streets with him and ministers to him while his daughter recovers. Um, you look at Madison and Jefferson, it was a deeply emotional relationship. I mean, when Madison is jilted by a 15 year old, it's, it's really Jefferson who like keeps him like keeps him sane. And when Jefferson is ready to quit politics twice, it's only Madison kind of keeping him in the game in the same way that Vernon does. I think how, you know, House, I know you disagree with, but I think there was an element, a really important emotional element. When Ellen Wilson dies in 1914, the consoler, comforter in chief is Colonel House. I mean, Woodrow Wilson says, I need you back here when he's gallivanting in Europe. 
There was so many of these presidents, Gary. We you talked again in our five minute conversation. I, I brought out these so many of these presidents endured terrible tragedies, lost oh, terrible wives. I mean, terrible. it's incredible, uh, yeah. particularly in the earlier days. And that consolation comes up through the yes, exactly right. I mean, I think that you know the the apogee of emotional engagement in the life of a president was, and it gets very little play. And I'm, I've always been curious about this, but. Hillary Clinton was going to leave Bill Clinton in the fall of 1998 after he admits to the affair. She's dead. She's going to leave him. And Clinton is at wit's end. And what does he do? He calls Vernon and he says, Vernon, I need you to go talk to Hillary. Talk her out of leaving me. And Vernon goes to Hillary. I don't know what was said because I didn't have the courage to ask Hillary, when I interviewed her, what did Vernon say to you? Because um, I thought she'd hang. I thought she'd end up end the interview. But I know this from the president that you know. I said, why did you send Vernon? He said, because he was the only person I trusted, and the only person that Hillary respected enough to have that conversation. And I think you see, you know, you see versions of that throughout my book. So I would say that um, in every, I think there is an emotional relationship in all nine. I'm going to boldly say that. Uh, I'm looking at the uh, the questions that are here, and I don't want to take. Uh, are you, oh, Jane Harmon, did you say Patricia that Jane wanted to ask a question? Well, I don't know if she wants to or not, but I, I'm hoping she does. But Christopher Lowe does want have a question to ask. Okay. I think. Hi, Jane. By the way, I, Jane 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 has heard this talk in uh, one form months ago. We're always happy to have her on. Hi. Hi. Maybe, maybe Jane can think of a question while I'm doing this. Uh -huh. um, it, it sounds a fascinating book. So, so now you now you studied first friendships. Is it possible to be a first friend of a president if a friendship only begins after that person's been seriously discussed as a possible future president? Or does it have to be before that time? It's an interesting question. Um, Alan would say, well, that's analogous to the Woodrow Wilson story, because I think by November of 1911, Woodrow Wilson's pretty resolved to run for president. And he's a front, he's not, yeah, he, you could say he was a front runner by that point. Um, I think the example of Colonel House proves that you can, although I think it's a little bit compromised if I'm being completely honest, because there's a there's an element of truth to what Alan says, which is from Colonel House perspective, there was a transactional element because he was looking for that man and the opportunity. So it didn't have the purity of every other friendship, which was formed years, decades before the president was strongly considering running for president. And I think there's probably a depth to those friendships that is just much greater than if you form it on the heels of it. But the reason why I gave the Wilson friendship so much credence is because I think there was that hole in Wilson's life that needed to be filled. And I, and I think that Without Colonel House, Wilson would have been an even lonelier, angrier, 
anti-social man than he already he 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 already was. He was kind of on that Nixonian plane of being dark and introverted and very content to be on his own. And I think he really reveled in the presence of Colonel House. And in part, that's why he gave him so much responsibility because he liked to be around him. And um, and the more more that he had reason to interact with House, the better for his emotional well-being. But I think to your question, I think it's a better friendship, frankly, if it's formed years, decades earlier. There's just more richness to it, more of a purity to it. Patricia, I hope you'll forgive me. I told Patricia I have to be in Brooklyn and uh, almost instantly. Uh, but I, you know, they always say end a good party before it starts petering out. This has been a great party. I've enjoyed every minute of of uh, intensely reading your book and having the chat with you. I I, I just hope everybody on this on this uh, call buys the book, sends it to your friends. I've sent it to several people. Uh, uh, it's great, a great gift for Christmas. It's really a fun read, and it's been great to have this conversation with Gary. And I look forward to us hiking on Sunday if we find each other. I do too. Thank you, Alan, for these really thoughtful questions and for taking the time to do this. And thank you, Patricia, for inviting me to do it. Uh, congratulations on the tremendous success of the book, and we hope they get more printings out so you can um, actually get them in more people's hands. But I urge everyone to buy it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alan. I always love it when you're when you're uh, helping us out here. Thank you. Goodbye.